Dear ones, let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you have given to us your holy word. We ask that you would illuminate the pages of scripture for us this morning, that we might see what it is that you would have us to do for your glory in this world, Lord God. Open up our hearts and our minds to hear you in this place. Amen. Our gospel reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Our epistle reading comes from the letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Finally, our passage from the book of Acts this morning comes from chapter 19, verses 1 through 11. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples 
And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is the word of God for the people of God. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Our parable this morning from Matthew, the parable of the sower, is one that brings up many questions that those of us trying to figure out how to be God's people in today's world are already asking. Why do some people hear God's good news and respond and others don't? Why does it seem sometimes like nobody is hearing our actual message? How do we find fertile ground on which to sow the seeds of the gospel? Why do some people hear it as law only, warping the message and missing the spirit of freedom? Why do some people's lives seem so inconsistent with their message? They claim to be Christian, but the witness of their lives is no different than the other people around them. What is the fertilizer, so to speak, and what is just a load? You all know what fertilizer is made of, right? It's made of manure, but you can't just dump that on the field. There are other things that go into making it fertilizer. There are many things that go into nurturing seeds and soil to grow something beautiful or to grow something that is nutritious, that brings life and health. And our text from Acts today points to a big one, the work of God's Spirit. When we come into this section in the book of Acts, there were still followers of John the Baptist preaching the same sort of baptism that John preached, even after his death, even after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. And John the Baptist was certainly very important But his followers didn't continue to follow where he was pointing. They stayed in one place, and they missed the boat. Leading up to this section, a preacher named Apollos has been teaching the church as well. But Apollos also is not preaching a complete gospel. He is not preaching the entire baptism in Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit. As the budding faith of Christianity began to spread, not all of the teachers and followers were teaching the whole gospel. They weren't doing this maliciously. They didn't mean harm. They just didn't have the whole story, and they didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit. They had faith, 
but it was sort of faith light. And the trouble with it is that faith without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is vague, and it's watered down. It's just religion for the sake of religion. It's about being right and not righteous. And it's not about what we were given by Jesus to live out. And it doesn't make a difference to much of anyone. Instead of being a spirit-led community that responds to what God is actively doing in the world, we often like to stick to what we've always known, much like the followers of John the Baptist did, not moving on, following where he was pointing to Jesus, but staying right where they were. Instead of inviting the Holy Spirit to work in new ways and continue to write the story of the church, we often preach watered-down faith of law and nostalgia. That watered-down faith doesn't do much other than languish and eventually die out. We like to stick to the relatively comfortable but nonsensical band-aids that the world without God's Spirit tries to slap on the problems in the world and in our lives. Many people today prefer prosperity gospel over real gospel. It's less work to believe in good old-fashioned hard work and set rules of conduct and procedure than it is to believe in a Holy Spirit who does things in ways we rarely understand in full during this lifetime. We are surrounded by vaguely spiritual self-help that makes us feel better in the moment but doesn't tackle real problems like sin and evil and suffering. It challenges us to think positively, to think good about ourselves, but nothing more. It says that if we just have more faith or pray harder or put our backs into it more, our mortgage on our big house in our nice neighborhood will always be paid, our health will be good, or at least when it's not, we'll have the strength to be cheerful, and our children and grandchildren will always behave like the good little children we've worked hard to raise. We are, as young children, handed the idol of individualism and the religion of hard work, but we aren't asked to apply ourselves to our relationship with God. We are told that the poor are poor because they're flawed in some way, and that the rich are rich because they deserve it more. We are told that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, and if bad things happen to us, we must have done something to deserve it. But none of this is biblical. Yes, scripture calls us away from sloth. It doesn't give us an out from working hard in life. But it does not say that working hard will always earn you earthly prosperity. It never says that living a good life will keep evil from infiltrating. This week online, a friend of mine shared an on-point but troubling blog post with me. It was titled, Five Sure Signs You've Been Hoodwinked by Prosperity Gospel. It was powerful. It explained that you may not be a follower of health and wealth teaching, but that our culture is permeated by prosperity gospel thinking. These five signs were, you can't accept that Christians are bound to suffer. You believe that poverty is just a lack of faith. You care more about personal prosperity than shalom. You can't see that the gospel is revolutionary good news for the poor. 
You think the prophet's main job was to predict the future instead of to rail against injustice. The first one, you can't accept that Christians are bound to suffer. is a big one in today's world. Scripture doesn't tell us that good people, or even Christians, are immune to sin and evil in the world. It tells us that we do not have to be controlled by sin and evil, that we are free from it in our spirit, but it does not say that we are immune to its effects in the world. In some places in scripture, it specifically says that Christians will be the target of suffering. You believe poverty is just a lack of faith. Some of the most faithful people I've known cannot seem to get their feet under them, and it is not for lack of hard work or for lack of faith. Jesus says that the poor will always be with us. Poverty is not just an individual condition. It is a systematic evil that is a result of the collective sins of humanity, not just the sins of individuals. You care more about personal prosperity than shalom. The word in scripture that we often translate as prosperity does not really have a good English equivalent. I know I say that a lot, that some of these words don't have good English equivalents. The word is shalom, which loosely, broadly means peace, but it's not just peace as in a lack of violence, but peace as in wholeness and entire peace, entire health. It has nothing to do with earthly success and comfort. If you have a great house and several nice cars and all of the things that denote worldly success and you have no inner peace, it's not worth squat. You can't see that the gospel is revolutionary good news for the poor. The gospel is indeed good news for everyone but especially for the poor and downtrodden. If you think that Jesus came to save our souls with no revolutionary effect on the world around us and with no good news for the poor and the suffering and the injured and the ill, then you are only reading part of the gospel. You think that the prophet's main job was to predict the future instead of to rail against injustice. Surely many of the things that the prophets of old said were going to happen, happened because they were results of the sin of the community. But these guys weren't just fortune tellers. They were there to say, these are your communal sins and this is what God does to those who don't pay attention to the good of all. Read Amos sometime. And try not to get mad about how unjust and, un and mean the world was at that time, or even this time. I think we could use more old-school prophets in our world today. The good news is this, though. Those who are trapped by watered-down, lazy half-gospel don't have to stay there. It's not a life sentence to lukewarm faith. All of us have bought in at some time or another to some part of some half-gospel, half-truth. You are not alone. 
those believers in Ephesus who had been sold half-true gospel were not unable to find their way. They weren't just condemned to continue living out this partial faith, this partial Christianity. We see that when they are called out by Paul about missing the Holy Spirit, they are then baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and Paul lays hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. They are willing to accept that they haven't had the whole story, and so they submit themselves to the Spirit of God so that they can really live out their calling. How humbling it is to watch them not get defensive, not argue with Paul, but simply say, we want that. We want that whole gospel here in our lives and in our community. And friends, great things started to happen after that. I've been to Ephesus. The Christian witness there left in the churches and other ruins from centuries ago is powerful. And Artemis, the god most Ephesians worshipped before Paul arrived, had at that time a huge temple there. And all that's left of it is a big pillar with a pelican sitting on top. Turkey is now a primarily Muslim country. The government is uh, proclaims to be secular, but most of the Turkish people are Muslim. But yet you can't go there without seeing how powerfully the Holy Spirit moved all those centuries ago. These Christians set aside their pride. They admitted that there was still something more that they needed, and they responded to the gospel. And after that, their faith was off the chain. We are given that same spirit today. That spirit has not changed. It's our acknowledgement of the spirit that changes, but we can still be filled in that powerful way. We're going to do something a little bit different for the prayers of the people this morning. I realize this requires some shuffling around in the bulletin, and that's okay. We'll let the Holy Spirit move around our bulletin this morning. And what we're going to do is that we are going to break into small prayer groups, and we are going to pray for this church and for this community. This will be our prayers of the people this morning. And you will know that it is the end of our prayer time because I will get back up here and close our prayer and lead us in the Lord's Prayer, after which we will proceed with the next hymn and the recitation of the Creed. You will find, if you have a copy of the sermon with you that you're following along, you will find that there is a list of prayer prompts at the end of the sermon that we will pray about together. And if you don't have that, don't worry, I will come around and make sure every group has one. And these prompts are to pray that God would reveal the places in which we as a local church community have been have bought into half gospel or pre- prosperity gospel or faith without the Holy Spirit. Pray that God would help us to see what is fertilizer and what is just manure. In other words, what is empty religion and what is spirit-led sowing of the gospel in the community around us. Pray that God would develop in every individual in our congregation the passion and the self-awareness to fully participate in the work of the Spirit. Pray for our elders and our deacons, for those who lead this community, that they would see how God is working in the world, so that they can lead us to be God's hands and feet and voice in the world around us. Pray for renewal 
and for the Holy Spirit to fill this place and to fill every person in it, from the very youngest to the very oldest, that we might be a living, breathing witness to God's goodness.